Hi, I'm Chris McKendry, and welcome to Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. The prevailing idea of what an athlete is like, especially a professional athlete, is that they're built tough. They're able to overcome any obstacle with grit and determination. But that perception often does them a disservice. Competing at a high level can leave injuries that aren't visible to the eye. Olympic gymnast Lori Hernandez is intimately familiar with this truth. At 16, Lori became a household name as a member of the Final Five, the U.S. women's gymnastics team that captured gold at the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. Lori also won a silver medal for her routine on the balance beam. But big smiles and shiny medals are not always indicative of what's happening on the inside. Shortly after her appearance in the 2016 Olympics, Lori, with the help of her mother, reported her longtime coach for abusive conduct. Her coach was eventually reprimanded in 2020 and suspended from coaching for eight years. Since then, Lori has publicly addressed her struggles along with those of other gymnasts who have challenged USA Gymnastics to better protect its athletes and investigate abusive coaches and staff. Lori continues to be an outspoken advocate for mental health, and that is what our conversation's about today, the mental game, because mental health is part of the fight for equality. How do you keep your body and mind in the game, and how can we ensure our sports are safe for everyone? Thank you so much for speaking with me, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. I think the conversation that we're about to have is obviously mm-hmm. very important to be able to talk about mental health within the sports world is something that is becoming more common nowadays, but we still don't hear enough about it. And it still can be so lonely and fearsome for some. It's hard even for anyone, let alone an athlete who's so strong. And it looks like the world's your oyster to say, I'm hurting inside. Something's wrong and I can't figure it out. I want to talk about your coaching and what that did to you. But you are such an extremely artistic gymnast, a performer. You're so expressive. It's written all (laughs) over your face, the joy you have for your craft. You clearly love it. So let's go back to the early days in the gym, maybe the happy days in the gym. And tell me what came so natural to you? I mean, my favorite thing was the floor exercise because I loved dancing. I loved, I mean, I started gymnastics just because I watched girls on TV do it. And I remember like pointing to the screen and telling my mom, like, mom, I want to be just like those girls. I didn't even think gymnastics, I didn't realize it was a thing. I didn't know that's what human beings did. And so to <laughs> see that on screen and watch these girls do amazing flips, so graceful and so powerful. I was like, wow, that seems great. I just remember watching the bigger girls and being like, wow, look at them go. I want to do all the things that they do. And I would get excited to try new skills because it meant that I was one step closer to being like them. So those were those were the good old days. Those were the days where you don't really understand like the concept of the pressures of competition and you don't really understand like the weight of being at such a high level. You're just doing it for fun. And that's what the beginning of sport and, you know, the core of sport is all about is joining because it's fun and because you get to challenge yourself. When did that change? When did your training intensify? I have a specific moment that it changed for me. In 2009, I had done, it was like a series of conditioning and all these like 
like mini competitions that we had to do. And it was for a TOPS training camp. So the talent opportunity program where you get a lot of young athletes who show how strong they are. And if you make it to like group A or group B, it meant that you were of the highest of the groups. And then you get to go to this training camp for about a week. You get to meet girls your age from all over the country and it's like a little summer camp like it was such an exciting thing and I had done it when I was eight years old I did it again when I was nine years old except this time when I got the approval that I made it into tops a camp I had also gotten an invitation to go to a developmental camp and they happened about a week apart and for some reason I had to pick one and it was like okay well do we choose Tops A camp where you get to make t-shirts and make dances and meet all your new friends? Or do we choose the developmental camp because this is the road that, like, if you want to go to the Olympics, this is the path that you go on. So do we choose fun or do we choose work? And immediately I was like, oh, we go to the developmental camp, baby, let's go. I want to go to the Olympics so bad. <laughs> and we did that. And there was a serious shift in my gymnastics. Literally since then, it wasn't necessarily about the fun. It was about, you know, what is everyone doing around me? What can I do to better my gymnastics? And like, what is my body type and how can I tune into that body type so we get the best skills for me? At nine years of age, you're already being taught, think about your body, think about how you perform, think about what you can do and start competing with the person next to you. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was like the responsibility of the coach to dissect like what skill is good for this athlete and what works best. And I do know that I was the first elite gymnast at the gym that I had trained at. It was a pretty small gym and it was just one that I lived nearby. And so that's where we went. And there were a lot of, you know, fantastic athletes before me that I got to watch, but I was the first one to go ahead and become an elite athlete and to qualify to that level, like right above level 10. Mm -hmm. And I had done that right when I was about 12 or so. And from then on, it was just navigating a new world. I think this was very new for my coach at the time. This was very new for me. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so there was a lot of like, let's try every skill under the sun. Paint the picture of a day in the gym with your longtime coach, Maggie Haney, who was suspended in 2020 for abusive conduct. Yeah, um, I mean, a day of practice for me, just subjectively, schedule-wise, looked like waking up in the morning. I would usually carpool with my best friend, Emily, at the time. We had trained in the same group, and I would sleep over her house, like, three times a week, and she would sleep over my house, and we would, like, alternate if parents or other parents from the gym would pick us up or if her dad would typically take us to practice. And we'd get there. Practice started at 8.30. We would usually do conditioning and warm-ups for like the first hour and a half, two hours of practice. And then we would really start to get into the nitty-gritty, whether that was, you know, if it was meet season and we had to start doing routines or if that meant we got to like kind of play and just work skills, which was very rare the older I got. And then we would have about an hour and a half to like two and a half hours. It depended the day of a lunch break. That was time for the homeschooled kids, which included me and a handful of other athletes. And then we would come back for a second workout. And that was only a few hours long. We would do that. And then we would carpool with another parent, get home. And then that's when I would do a lot of my schoolwork. I was homeschooled from the third grade all the way up until I graduated high school. So that was pretty common for a lot of us. And what was your coach like? It was a pretty explosive environment. And it wasn't necessarily like that all the time. I'd say the feeling of being on eggshells was like that all the time. But there was always a kind of tension in the gym that 
you know, when I came back the second time around to try and train for Tokyo, that tension was non-existent every single day of every hour of every minute. And it was shocking to me that a place could be so light. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, training in New Jersey, it was just so, it was heavy. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of like fear of making mistakes. There was consequence for making mistakes. There was lots of yelling. We would get like complaints from parents in the parking lot because they could hear my coach. She was just yelling that loud. There was more often than not like training on injuries. There was some girls who just had a lot of anxiety and would like their stomach would get super upset before practice would even start. But it was all I knew. And like I would go to these training camps once a month or once every three months, depending on what age I was. It got more frequent the older I got. And I would see a lot of the coaching from other girls and to me, I was like, oh, like, yeah, my life is great. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't, like, that over there, that sucks. And then I just, I remember, like, one of my friends bringing it up to me, like, yeah, it seems really difficult. Like, and I was like, oh, I thought the same thing for you. And, like, you know, we're 13 and 14 at the time, so we don't know. But, yeah. Wow. But then at 16, there you were, a member of the Olympic team. Yeah. And shortly after turning 17, you go to Rio and you win gold and silver. But what was the experience all about? Yeah. I mean, I was just barely 16 for Rio. So, okay. Um, wow. It was interesting because you have to be 16 years old or older to compete at a senior level competition in artistic gymnastics. And so for like a world championships, international meets or the Olympics, you have to be 16. As long as you turn 16 in the year, you're good to go. So we have some athletes who will still be 15 years old when they're competing, but maybe their birthday's in, you know, the fall or winter or something. And so my birthday's in June. I had just turned 16 and I was getting ready for Olympic trials and then That year was just crazy. That year, I mean, the pressure was on and everybody felt it, whether that was in my own gym or whether that was just Team USA in general. I mean, the year of the Olympics is, I mean, you could bite the air. There's so much tension. And I think for me, like I had gotten like a knee strain or some kind of knee injury in March of 2016. And I remember like, trying to go to physical therapy, trying to like fix it. And it just wasn't fixing itself. So I had to sit out for a lot of practice. And my coach was like, you know, like there's a lot of athletes who they're training all around the world for the same thing that you are. And you're kind of just sitting on the side. I don't know. I just feel like if you wanted it, you would do it, but it just seems like you don't want it enough. And I was like, um, okay. I don't really know what to do with that information. Um, I can't tumble, so I'm going to go ahead and sit on the side. And I ended up quitting for like three days. I thought I really did something, you know, quitting for three Mm -hmm. days. I didn't know it was going to be three days when I did it. But I quit because it was just, it was too much pressure. And I was cracking as a 15-year-old. I felt not only my coach's pressure, but the pressure of just like the Olympics. And even at that time, like I felt so sensitive to my environment that support felt like pressure when, you know, my community back in Old Bridge, New Jersey would be like, we're rooting for you. You can do it. I didn't know how to receive that as support. I received it as like, oh God, all these people are counting on me and I'm letting everybody down. And so I quit and it was one of the best things I ever did. Burnout is real. And turns out I just needed a nap, a three-day one. (laughs) (laughs) What brought you back after the three-day hiatus? I think I was rested. You know, when I decided like, okay, I'm done. That's it. In my head, that truly was it. I was done, you know? 
I was able to let go of everything. I can go to sleep and not think about routines tomorrow. I can go to sleep and not think about when I'm going to schedule, like, my cereal bars to keep my energy going. Like, each athlete and each gymnast has little idiosyncrasies that you carry around with you, whether that's in practice or competition. And, like, I don't have to adjust my grips after every turn because I can just be home where I can be doing whatever I need and I can eat whatever I want and I can sleep for as long as I want. And I just had a chance to breathe for a second. Turns out that was all I needed. And I was like, oh. <laughs> when you won the gold, as I said, your team was so heavily favored and you came through and then you won the silver as well. What are those moments like? It was one of those moments where I'm really grateful to my brain for being able to receive visually where I was. I think a lot of my growing up in the environment that I did caused me to kind of like space out and I call it like kind of pull the brain parachute where you're here, but you're not really here. And so being able to like go in and compete, a lot of that is a little bit blurry for me. But then like when we were on podium, I just remember thinking to myself, like, even if you do make another Olympic team, even if whatever happens happen, like you are never going to get this moment again. Just take it in. Like, just just see everything. And I just started, like, describing everything to myself. I was like, we're on a wooden podium. We're in the <laughs> middle of the floor. There's so many, you know, American flags and other countries' flags that are waving in the crowd. And this medal is really heavy in my hands. And they gave us this, like, little—it was like a trophy style. It was the symbol of the games that year. And I just remember taking that all in. And I still can look back on it and feel like I'm there and— there's nothing that kind of explains that feeling of just standing up there and being like, well, damn, I did it. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you were so smart to be able, I mean, at your age, to be present. You know, you were actually present in the moment where I'm listening to you talk about pulling the brain parachute. It sounds like you were just protecting yourself. Yeah, I think dissociating from my environment was something that really... It was really prominent growing up, and I still catch myself trying to work out of it. But there are times where, like, I don't know, it got to a point where as soon as my coach would yell past a certain, like, volume, I just, like, couldn't hear anything anymore. Shortly after the Olympics, you told your mom what was going on. You told your mom about your life at the gym. Tell me what she did. My mom—so I actually didn't necessarily come to my mom. I was FaceTiming a friend of mine— and um, we were talking about an experience, which I don't know if she would want me to share, so I'll keep it personal. But we were talking about an experience that happened at practice. And mm -hmm. we were laughing about it because we didn't know anything else. Like, And so we just we giggled about it. And my mom had overheard it from the other room. And she was like, okay, come sit down. What other moments like this happened? You're not in trouble. Just tell me about it. And I told her everything. And she wrote it down in an email and immediately sent it to USAG and was like, we will not be in contact with this coach anymore. You need to know that this happened. Like, my mom is also a social worker. She's, I think, almost retired now. But she immediately was like, okay, no. <laughs> and she sent it in. And there were a lot of little, like, issues that were happening. And we basically, like, reported my coach. And nothing had happened. There was no investigation or anything up until in late 2019, early 2020, there was like a case that had opened up basically and it sounded like half a dozen or a handful of athletes from the same gym had complained and had like the same MO that I did or the same issues and problems and emotional reactions that I was having and struggling with. 
except a lot of those girls came after I had left and I had not known them. So that was when the case really opened up and they were like, oh, okay, this kid's not just really sensitive. Like this is actually happening. We should look into this. And so it got looked into. I had to share my experience. And this was all happening during an Olympic year. This was before we realized that COVID would delay the games. And so it's like, you know, November or so in 2019, that was one of my first training camps back after taking all that time off from Rio. And my first camp back, I had seen my coach <laughs> in the same gym. And I was like, I'm going to die. This sucks. I just remember like, we have little verifications that happen at these camps, and I could feel my coach just looking at my gymnastics and judging it. And it was like, you know, we're not allowed to talk to each other, like, due to tons of different, you know, between my mom and USAG. Like, we're not allowed to talk to each other. And so it was just a matter of, like, how do we exist in the same space? And then 2020 comes, and I have to share this experience, and then that messes with my head. So I'm at practice, like, just kind of sulking and... Yeah, it was just, it was a really hard, like that early 2020 was a really hard time period because not only am I trying to train for the Olympics, but I now have to dissect 11 years of emotional abuse. And like my coach, uh, her name's Jenny, who I trained with in California, was so kind and was like, we'll just condition, we'll just do mental routines and then you're going to go home and we try again tomorrow. And we just, when you're ready, we will be ready. Like she was very kind and understanding, but that was... That's yeah. that's the tea. Wow. Well, when I hear that, I think, okay, these complaints against your abusive coach were levied in 2016. And here you are in 2019 into 2020 asking yourself, how am I sharing space with her? My question is, what was she still doing in your space? It took so long for your story to be believed, to be heard yeah. by USAG. Did you ever question, should I have done this? Should I not have done this? Because you truly put your personal story out there, but you helped so many people who came behind you. I've talked about this a lot in therapy. I think there's always going to be like a... It's not really there as much anymore. There's like the emotional aspect of the experience and the logical aspect of this experience. And um, the logical aspect says, I spoke up. Logically, I recognized that I did the right thing. I told the nearest adult who knew what to do, which was my mother. My mother did the right thing, you know, whereas like there were a lot of adults when I was training in my old environment that just didn't say anything. And they were too afraid to confront this coach because she held so much power and she was so intimidating and so loud. And so like my mom stuck up for me, did the right thing, told the right people. And it was just a matter of the next right people, which at the time was USAG. And, you know, I'm so glad that eventually it was handled, but it just took way too long. And I think a lot of things are changing now, which is so important, but it took something like that to recognize like, okay, we have to really listen to these <laughs> complaints and we have to really do something about it. So like logically, my brain says I protected a lot of kids. I did the right thing. It was hard to share my experience, but I know that a lot of kids went through the same thing I did. And it wasn't just in my own gym. This is systemic. This is all around gymnastics. So if I share this experience, people are going to recognize, like, you know, what you went through and what felt wrong. It was wrong. And that's really validating to a lot. And then there's the emotional part. There's the emotional part of, I have known this coach since I was five. I spent more time at practice than I did at home. And so it's, I don't like this feeling, but, like, it's almost like a parental figure, someone that you're with when you're so young during your formative years, and you're trying to listen and mold and put yourself into whatever box makes you safe, whether that be I am more quiet, I am more bubbly, I am talkative, I am a great listener, I am someone who tries my best, you know, like, just 
shape-shifting yourself into a person who cannot be yelled at and who cannot receive repercussion, but, like, that never worked. And so then there's this emotional fear of this person, this, like, guilt of, like, should I have spoken up? Did I do the right thing? You know, I think I probably really hurt her feelings, like, and that's that's the young kid in me that needs, like, older me to look back and be like, this was a really crazy experience, and this is how much it's affected you even as an adult to the point where you're questioning, like, did it even happen? I don't have any bruises or scrapes. Like, I have nothing to show for it. How do I explain that this is what happened? Yes, absolutely. You mentioned your therapist. There's sports psychologists, and we see them on the teams. You know, many tennis players have one sitting there in the box. They're helping an athlete maximize their performance. And yet you were done performing and you needed, as I've read, you wanted someone who didn't know who you were. You didn't need a sports psychologist to help you with your performance, to maximize what everybody else around you was trying to maximize. You needed real help. When did you seek that out? Yeah, I had gone and seen a sports psychologist like a year or two before the Rio games because I was getting really bad performance anxiety. So we thought that was what it was. And I would train really well and then I would go and compete and I would fall a ton of times. And like not just fall, I would wipe out. I would peel off. Like it was almost like my brain was just having a brain fart as soon as the time came for it. And so we did EMDR work and it was like, okay, like think about the right before. Think about right before you salute the judges, those really nerve-wracking feelings that you get. Think about how your body responds and like your hands get shaky, your ankles get shaky, you feel like you're going to throw up. You can hear your heart in your ears. Put yourself in that place and let's do this EMDR light work. And we did that. And since then I had competed really quite well and like my workouts were transferring over into that. So then the problem that I kept coming back to this sports psychologist was like, okay, I'm having problems. It's not really with my gymnastics. It's more so with like myself, but that's where things started to shift. And I was like, this isn't working for me because my problem isn't my gymnastics. I don't know where my problem is, but it's not my gymnastics. My gymnastics feels sturdy and great. I can rely on that. It feels like I can't rely on myself. And it turns out it was just me and this coach. You know, I came to that conclusion of like, I need someone who doesn't just value gymnastics and performance. I need someone who values mental health and the brain and just why this is happening. And so I had seen, like, multiple therapists between living in California and different states due to, like, you know, there's all that therapy regulation. And there was one that I had seen a, uh, about a year ago. It was just brilliant. It was just brilliant. Like, we had a session, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, and it was just, like, to have a good therapist is one of the best things that a human being can do in their life. It is worth it to, like... Get one or two sessions in. Do you like this person? Try another one if not. Like you don't have to stay with a therapist that it feels like you can't connect with because that relationship between therapist and client to be able to share things that like you don't even want to share with yourself, that is so important. And I think that's where my life really started taking a turn and I felt comfortable just being in my own skin again. That is awesome. I love hearing that. I mean, you deserve health. You deserve happiness, you know, and, and it's incredible to hear what you had gone through, honestly. I mean, from depression to eating disorders, performance anxiety, and there's just, in gymnastics, the perfection, everything, the hair, the makeup, they're competing. I mean, how do you describe what's expected of a gymnast outside of just the physical performance? Yeah, well... I mean, you're kind of meant to be like a mini soldier in a way. Like, 
your logic and emotion, everything kind of has to be set. Elite gymnastics, it's gotten a lot looser now, but it was like you come in and you're so serious and you don't look at anyone and you don't laugh and you don't talk to anyone. Like you're in your own tunnel zone. Your hair has to be perfect. Your makeup has to be perfect. Your leotard has to be the sparkliest of sparkles you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) And it has to fit you perfect. You have to have the perfect body. And if you look out of shape, then people start whispering. And then you're like, oh, God, now I have to change something on top of, I don't know, 15 years of gymnastics. (laughs) And then, like, it just... It doesn't end. Like, it just, there comes a point where you just have to release it and understand that the most important part about you as the athlete is how you perform and then deciding what you need to get there. Outside of that, everything is just built to, I guess, create the facade that, like, not only is our gymnastics perfect, but we as human beings are perfect too. And it's just, it's just not fair. And if you got to turn it on for the meat, then that's one thing. But, that was kind of what the environment was like as a whole. Well, you're so outgoing and you're so bubbly and you're so talkative. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that you would share your story. However, one thing we're looking at in this series of conversations, it's not just the issues women have faced, especially women athletes, but we're also looking at the women who are addressing these issues. And that's you. What inspired you to advocate for mental health, mental awareness, and in doing so, saying, I'm going to lay bare my story and my struggles? Yeah, I think I have a good friend of mine um, (laughs) who had once, uh, he's also in the mental health profession, and um, he speaks up a lot about his experience going through high school, and he struggled with being bipolar, and um, he's a professor now, and like just does all these amazing things, and he once mentioned, like, yeah, nobody really chooses to be a mental health advocate. You kind of just get tossed into there, and I, I just laughed, and I thought that was so accurate, because for me, sharing my story, it meant that I had control of the narrative. It meant that no more whispers or oh, well, like, I heard that this is what happened. This is my firsthand account of what happened, and I am going to go ahead and share that with everyone because I know I'm not the only one, but I also want control over this. I felt like I had never had control over anything, and this is the one thing that I get, and this is my story, and here you go. And the media just kind of ate it up, and they were like, wow, Lori Hernandez shares mental struggles in practice, shares that she had panic attacks and all this. Mental health advocate, Lori Hernandez, mental health advocate. And I was like, I am a mental health advocate now. (laughs) There we go. Like, it wasn't, you know, but it's, it's a title that, like, I take a lot of responsibility for. And I'm glad that that's the way that it went. And I think it can feel like a lot of pressure because it's like, oh, God, mental health advocate. Like, what do I have to show for it? And my family is like, really? That's what you're thinking? Like, and I, and it was just another stigma that I had put on myself. You don't have to have anything to show for it. The most important thing is that you talk about it. And that's, that is the heart of a mental health advocate is that you're sharing the experience to the honest, fullest extent. And that includes all of the things that everybody else deems as not cute. (laughs) You know, like, depression isn't just kind of sitting in your bed and watching TV. Like for me at a point, like depression is struggling to like take care of myself and to like take a shower and to brush your teeth and to wash your clothes and to put your damn stuff away and to like wash the dishes. Like depression, it can feel like it's just a weight that's sitting on you. And a lot of times that's just not talked about. Yeah. What would you like to see improve in the lives of young athletes 
I think being able to share that you're going through something without you being seen as weak, that's a really big one. I know, like, coming back for Tokyo my second time around, I had kind of, like, not necessarily asked. I was really beating around the bush about it, but, like, had requested or wondered what mental health services were available for athletes. And it was very, like, wishy-washy at the time. <laughs> like, I didn't really get a serious answer. And then there's the fear of, like, well, I just don't – maybe she's just not ready to compete. Like, maybe she's just not – you know? And I'm like, I'm just telling you that I get really anxious being in this environment because it gave me anxiety as a kid, and now I'm back, you know, three, four years later. Like, but I'm still here – so I think it's important for us to keep talking about it and to keep doing our best to perform at our best while we talk about it. So that way that stigma gets released a little bit more. There's no perfect way to do it, but like, yeah. <laughs> what do you do when you're a gold medalist at 16? You know, what's your next act? I've talked to other Olympians about this. And, you know, when being an Olympic champion is going to be your title for the rest of your life, you need to find a second act. And you have found a great one after all of these years of homeschooling. <laughs> Tell me what you're up to. Oh, I just finished my freshman year at NYU Tisch. I'm currently living in Brooklyn. And I've been doing a lot of like different commentary things as well with NBC. And so Life has definitely taken like a very sharp left turn and that separation away from sport is one that we've been taught to fear because we're taught that sport is all we are and it's all that we can do. But gymnastics, like that's why what Simone is doing right now is a big deal. Her being the age that she is and coming back for a third games, our gymnastics lifespan is very short compared to other sports. And so once Rio came and then once Tokyo was over, I was like, well, I don't really know what to do with my life next <laughs> So that point of what comes next is a very big deal for us. And I'm very grateful that like between acting, writing, entertainment, all of those things bring me so much joy. And I still get to perform without, you know, landing short and hurting my ankles. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. And hey, NYU Tish is no joke. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> I homeschooled my whole life to like now being in person, memorizing all these things, writing nine page essays like that's. But I did it. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Bravo, you. And and uh, come on, humble brag. How are the grades? I got straight A's my entire first Woo! year. <laughs> <laughs> straight A gold medalist. Well, there you are. Congratulations. Uh, no, I mean, it's just great to see. I, I think that's something I've loved to see now that, uh, you know, the Olympians can can take money, can take, you know, scholarships and and you can compete and then you can also go off to college. It really shouldn't be one or the other for such young yeah. athletes. You know, it, it's it's great. It's time for My Two Cents, a segment sponsored by J.P. Morgan. And at the end of every show, I want to take a moment to reflect and ask you for words of wisdom. So, Lori, what do you recommend to the women who are just now looking to join professional gymnastics? Absolutely. Go for it. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. If you feel the instinct to move— this is your sign to move and to get out there and to try new things. And to remember that if you want to go and go to the Olympics and you want to go and get all of these medals, that you can do that. It's hard, but you can do that. And if you just want the freedom of movement, you don't have to just go to the gym. You can go rock climbing. You can ride a bike. You can do all those things. But just get your body moving and know that the world is waiting for you. And if you look back 
is there anything that you would have done differently? That's a rough question. (laughs) You know what? I think with the brain and the body that I've been given, I made every best possible choice and decision that I could have made with the information that I had. And I have no regrets about that. That's terrific. That's great. You shouldn't. Gosh, you've done so much. For what are you? 22? 23. 23. You are a marvel. You are a marvel. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I've really enjoyed this this conversation. It's so, you know, it's so important. Um, And, uh, and, you know, we're talking to all different athletes on different topics, but this comes up, you know, this comes up a lot. We as professional athletes have been taught to push our physical and mental limits so much that we don't know it any other way. And that moment of quitting when I was 15, that time in the Olympics of like choosing rest and like nobody talks about how important rest is. And that like, if you don't want to burn out later, rest now, schedule in the rest now, because the goal is to survive till the end. It's not to die trying. It's to see how long you can keep going with your stamina. So like, I cannot stress enough how important rest and to like truly relax is. Yeah. It's interesting. I When you hear, you know, first thing many mental health professionals will ask is, how are you sleeping and how are you eating, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> first thing they bring up, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? And um, I, I imagine during the height of your training, you weren't doing either one very well. Yeah. Right? Sleeping or eating. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. So you take care of yourself now. <laughs> Heck yeah. Life is good now. We just... Life is good, and it's it's interviews like this that also, like, you know, outside of therapy that remind me just how far I've come and just the perspective of, like, what it means to be an athlete and to share not just the physical side that everybody sees, but the mental side that everyone can now hear. So thank you so much for, for having me, for chatting with me, for, for raising up my voice. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Lori, for being so open with your story. In the next episode, we talk with two professional athletes about how they juggle motherhood and competition. Two-time doubles Grand Slam finalist Taylor Townsend and 12-time Olympic medalist swimmer Dara Torres. Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis is presented by J.P. Morgan. It's a production of Neon Hum Media and the United States Tennis Association. And it's hosted by me, Chris McKendry. The series producers are Mia Warren and Rob Dozier. Executive producers, Shara Morris and Matt Guerra. Production management help from Samantha Allison and Taylor Sniffen. Our theme song was composed by Asha Ivanovich. Sam Baer is our engineer. Special thanks to Tara Bell and Rashina Warren.